So, I am now young, but not that young. I suppose there's a graduated uh, scale that he referenced. Let's see. He was young. Now he's young, but not that young. Pretty soon he will be, I don't know what's next, middle-aged. I'm not certain what's, what comes next. Um, Brother Liddell, of course, who's good friends with, with Tony Lawrence and also one of, was one of my instructors at school, we used to say, you know, when you're young, they say, one day you'll be an excellent preacher. And then when you get old, they say, there was a time when you were an excellent preacher. I don't know if I'm at the before or the, the during or the after, uh, but anyway, I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Uh, I've lost a little bit of my hair, uh, but that's not due to the folks at Hebron, nor is it due to my family. Uh, but I appreciate the opportunity to have to be here very much. I know many of you, um, and uh, there are some, though, that I do not know. Uh, I'd be interested in getting to know you a little bit more after services. Uh, we'll stick around for a little while and, and mingle if we can. And we didn't do too much of that beforehand. I thought, man, it's almost time for services, so I sat down. Ten minutes later, we began, so I must have been a little bit behind on my, uh, on my uh, estimation of time. Several days ago, uh, a woman came to my wife. And uh, she had at one time attended faithfully at Hebron and was no longer doing so. Had had some, some life difficulties to say the least and um, was attending a denomination. and One in particular that engaged in a lot of frivolity, a lot of uh, you know uh, unscriptural things within the worship assembly. And uh, she told Danielle when asked about that, she said, there's just so much more emotion there. And Danielle came and home, and, and she talked to me about that, and uh, I had two initial reactions. The first was anger and frustration. She should know better. You know, that was my first reaction, and that was, of course, Danielle's reaction as well. But, but then I had a different, longer-lasting emotion. I thought, well, in some way she's right. And I started thinking about that, and that thought was in the back of my mind, and, and this has been a few weeks ago, and then I really sat down and I was contemplating what to, what to talk about this evening, and I thought, you know, these two things kind of go hand in hand. If someone were to walk in and, and say, you know, the worship services of the Lord's church doesn't have very much emotion in it, there could be a number of reasons behind that. It could be because they're looking for something that the Bible does not warrant and authorize. It could be that they're interested in, in, in bands and in plays and things that, of course, are not found in Scripture. It could also be, perhaps, the case that you and I have, have done something, or maybe not done something, that's contributed to that. And, and as I thought about that, and I thought what could have happened, what might have happened, and as I thought about this sermon, then these two ideas came together. And so it's with that in mind that we're going to approach our topic this evening. And you can approach this from any number of ways. We could, we could have a sermon that detailed how prayer is to be done in worship, and we'll get into some of that. Uh, but, but we're going to do something just, just a little bit different this evening. And if you'll notice up there uh, on the board this evening, our text will be 1 Kings chapter 8, in verses 22 through 54. Now I want to make something clear, of course, on the front end. Uh, in John 4 and verse 24, Jesus said that God is spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. God is the audience. We are not. Uh, and as the audience, God dictates as the supreme ruler of our life and everything we do, how we come before Him. We must do so, number one, in spirit. That means the spiritual side of us, our attitude and, and all that's connected with it must be right, but it must also be done in truth, which means it must be done according to His commands, according to His will. And we understand that and we will discuss that more in pieces as we go through this sermon this evening. 
But as we get into 1 Kings chapter 8, what we're introduced to is a situation where Solomon is dedicating the temple. You remember that David, as uh, Solomon's father, as really the greatest example of what a king should be in many respects for the nation of Israel, the, the gold standard that would later be used to judge all other kings who came after. David was not allowed to build the kingdom, the temple of God, rather, because he had bloody hands, because of the wars he had undertaken, and for various other reasons, God uh, forbade him from doing that. So David stockpiled materials, developed relationships with tradesmen and others so that his son, Solomon, could build the temple. When the temple was finished, Solomon spent a few chapters there in 1 Kings, and it's also parallel in 2 Chronicles 6, dedicating the temple. And in that dedication, he did a number of things. He, he gave sort of a sermon. Uh, then, beginning in verse 22, he prayed. And in so praying, he led the nation of Israel in a public prayer. And so I thought as I came across that text, I thought, you know, maybe this is something we can use. And as I began to study it a little bit more in depth, I said, well, certainly there are some things that we can notice from 1 Kings chapter 8 in relationship to prayer. We're going to have just two points. I almost said two small points. I don't know how small they'll be. We have two points. Uh, you know, if you have three points, that's maybe a better omen for you folks than three. Two points means they're really big points. And so maybe we'll be here a while. I just don't know. I um, hope nobody double parked or anything like that. But, you know, parking here is pretty good. Two points. Who and how. Who is speaking and who is being addressed. That's number one. And how did he go about praying? What characteristics of prayer can we find in this passage? We'll start with the who. You see, the speaker, of course, is Solomon. We can go to Second uh, First uh, Kings chapter 8 and we can just read the first verse, verse 22 in our text this evening. And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all of the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands towards heaven. So we see Solomon is doing exactly what is under discussion tonight. He is leading a public prayer. The entire congregation, the nation of Israel, is being led in public prayer. And as we look at Solomon, as we think about who he is as an individual, we understand, first of all, that at this moment in time, at least, Solomon is righteous. Now, we don't know exactly what's been undertaken from uh, 1 Kings chapter 3 to 1 Kings chapter 8, but we do know that it's chapter 11 when it said that Solomon loved many strange women. And it goes on to discuss how those women turned his heart away from God and they led him towards idolatry and some of the most despicable acts of idolatry that you could ever imagine. Solomon, the wisest man ever to live upon this earth, save Jesus Christ Himself, was at the same time the dumbest man because he didn't use his wisdom. But in 1 Kings chapter 8, at least, Solomon has not been described that way yet. You remember in 1 Kings chapter 3 how Solomon had been given an opportunity to ask for anything he liked. Ask for it, it's yours. Um, I'm reminded, you know, of movies like Aladdin and other movies, you know, you're given three wishes. I was talking to a youth group one time and I said, what would you ask for if you got three wishes? A smart aleck said, uh, unlimited wishes. They don't game the system like that, but let's say you just had one wish. What would you ask for? You know, and it's very powerful. It says something about Solomon's character, doesn't it? In 1 Kings chapter 3, that, that when he's asked to, to request anything he wants, what did he choose? He chose an understanding heart. Hey, I'm young, I'm new at this, I've got this daunting task before me. 
Give me an understanding heart that I may be able to lead this people. In 1 Kings chapter 5, you see it demonstrated, right? You've got the, the dispute between the two women on whose child is whose. And, and he says, well, let's split the baby right down the middle. The real, the real mother says, no, 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 she can have it. You see his, his wisdom on display. It's that Solomon who is kneeling before the congregation and lifting his hands in prayer. Well, you say, what in the world does that have to do with what we're talking about this evening? See if you agree with me on this statement. The character of a congregation can be determined in large part by the types of men who lead it in prayer. Let's say that, that this, this congregation existed in a vacuum in all other ways and, and I came and I sat down in this congregation and I only watched the men who led. I watched the men who led singing. I watched the men who led prayer. I watched the men who waited on the Lord's Supper table. I watched the men who stood behind the pulpit. And I gauged that congregation only on those men. What would I think about a congregation? I, I hope that we understand that standing behind a, a pulpit or standing in any sort of situation and leading a group of Christians in prayer, that is a great opportunity, a great privilege. And it's something that ought to be reserved only for the righteous. And so it was for Solomon. And I've got 1 Timothy 3 up there, and, and you remember in verse 1 he talks about bishops, elders, and the qualifications for them. He continues to talk about deacons and the qualifications for them. And you ask yourself, why such stringent qualifications on elders and deacons? Because, in short answer, they represent the people. You look at them and you should see everything that's good about a group of God's people. It's been unfortunate that, that I've been involved with congregations where just any old fellow could get up and lead a prayer. No matter how he lived, Monday through Saturday. I have also seen at Hebron men who were scheduled. We have a board that has a list of names of who's doing what for the, the service. You saw his name up there. And he came to me before services that Sunday morning, and he said, Chris, will you have someone say a prayer for me? I don't feel like I'm worthy to lead this congregation in prayer. There's sin in my life, and it needs to be forgiven. And that's the kind of fellow I want leading a prayer for me. Righteous. A man that you can hold up and say, this is the representation of, of everything we are. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. He was number one, righteous. Number two, when we think about Solomon, he was also regarded. And what I mean by that is, well, preachers have to alliterate sometimes. I don't guess Tony ever alliterates his sermons. He probably is anti-alliteration, right? I think I've proofread enough of Tony's uh, 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 manuscripts to know he, he likes alliteration. I enjoy it occasionally. It's kind of a habit that's hard for preachers to break. So he was regarded. What I mean by that is there were people watching him. You say, well, of course there are people watching. No, no, you don't understand. Go to First Chronicles chapter six or Second Chronicles, rather, chapter six, and in verse thirteen it says, "For Solomon had made a brazen scaffold, and that scaffold was five cubits long, five cubits broad, and three cubits high. He made a stage. Now, did he make the stage to be pretentious so that everybody could see him? I don't believe so. Solomon, because we see a Solomon who in chapter three is very humble and very meek." I believe that Solomon made this scaffold simply for the purpose that everyone could see him and follow him as he prayed. It was a matter of convenience. Do you all love Tony so much that you all erected a stage in his honor? 
I know you all love Him. He's been here a long time. But this stage doesn't have anything to do with how much you respect Him, if we can even call it a stage. It's just a little raised area. You do it so you can see Him, right? You can see Him. Solomon erected a scaffold, a brazen scaffold, and there he, as we'll notice in just a moment, bowed on his knees and raised his hands up to heaven. And everybody in the whole congregation had the opportunity to see him and hear him as he made that prayer. Remember men. Everyone's listening. Now, everyone shouldn't be watching, you know. The little kid says, Mommy, Mommy, so-and-so wasn't praying. What's the first question Mommy asked? Well, how do you know? If you were praying, how do you know nobody else was praying? Well, we don't have to close our eyes. You know, that's a matter of, of focusing, and we understand we don't even have to bow our heads. You know, uh, we pray in the car for the trip. Sometimes we forget to pray for a long journey until we're on the road. And then he says, oh, oh, we need to pray. I'm like, all right. And my first instinct is to do this. Fathers, don't close your eyes when you're leading a prayer for the trip. Please don't do it. But anyway, um, when we think about prayer, we think about the fact that someone's standing up here and they are within earshot and eyesight of a bunch of folks who need direction and need guidance. You know, it's said concerning singing, and, and we've got some wonderful song leaders here and, and all over the brotherhood who do such a better job than I do. In Colossians 3 and verse 16, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we teach while we sing. While I'm singing, I am teaching the person next to me. It's a means of encouragement, edification. It could be a means of evangelism. It's a means of doing all sorts of wonderful things in the brotherhood to help one another. And the same is true for prayer. When I lead a public prayer, when you good men lead public prayers, understand that we are guiding and teaching another generation. And we are guiding and teaching other individuals who maybe are too frightened to get up there right now, but maybe in a few years they'll be up there leading prayer as well. And these individuals are looking and watching you and saying, I want to do what they're doing. Understand that. And don't neglect the opportunity you have to teach. In Luke 11 and verse 1, you remember that the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. And he goes on to give the model prayer. How does he teach them to pray? By praying. How do we teach our children to pray? Little Johnny, when you pray, here's what you need to do. You need to do this. No. Let's pray. And they hear you. And then you say, okay, little Johnny, you pray. It takes us 85 minutes to go to bed every night. because Everybody's got to pray. Now Bennett has to pray. He can't understand a word he said. But he's praying. He's trying. And he learns through doing. He learns through mimicking. We are instructing when we pray. More of the things we'll talk about a little bit later, we'll come back to that one aspect. So don't forget that. Number three, not only was it righteous and regarded, it was also representative. You see, Solomon wasn't just up there praying for himself. Solomon was up there praying for an entire nation. We'll just march through it a little bit. Go to 1 Kings chapter 8. Let's notice verse 31. If any man trespass against his neighbor. Well, what's the any man? Any man in the nation of Israel? Verse 33. When thy people Israel be smitten down. He's praying for an entire nation. 
in verse 35, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain, because they, who? The nation of Israel, have sinned against thee. In verse 37, if there be a land of famine, in the land of famine, if there be pestilence, blasting, mildew, locusts, if there be caterpillar, if their enemy besiege them, them who? The nation of Israel. When Solomon got up on this brazen scaffold and he knelt down on his knees and he lifted up his hands before God to pray, he knew that he was representing an entire nation of people. And so it is when we, and there are other passages that all throughout chapter 8 that reveal that same thing. When we stand to lead prayer, please don't neglect the fact that you're speaking for an entire group of people. You're not just praying on your own behalf. You're praying on behalf of a bunch of folks from a bunch of different backgrounds who have a whole lot of different needs, and some of that we'll address here in just a moment. Understand that you're representing an entire group and act accordingly. In James 5 and verse 16, we'll use this verse twice in our sermon this evening. Confess your faults one to another. Pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Effectual fervent. comes from a word that looks a whole lot like energy. The prayer that has energy behind it is the one that avails, has force. It accomplishes a purpose. He says the kind of prayer that works is the kind of prayer that comes from a righteous man and is dealing with the problems and the shortcomings and the challenges of the people that are represented. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another. When we're praying, it's not a performance. It's not a, a rote memorization you know, thing. It's not just a demonstration of what we know. We're praying on behalf of human souls. Solomon had to remember that and so in large part do we. So who, number one? Solomon was the speaker. But who was the subject? Number one, it was Israel. As we go through 1 Kings chapter 8, we see all of the different people for whom, or all the different kinds of things for whom Solomon was praying. You can pick up with me in verse 25. Therefore now, Lord God of Israel, keep with thy servant David my father that thou promised him, saying, There shall not fail thee a man in my sight to sit on the throne of Israel, so that thy children take heed to their way, that they walk before me as thou hast walked before me. And now, O God of Israel, let thy word, I pray thee, be verified which thou spakest unto thy servant David my father, but will God and we dwell in the earth? Skip verse 27. We'll notice it in a moment. Verse 28. Yet have thou respect unto the prayer of thy servant. Be with me the leader. I am the king. I represent the congregation. Please be with me. He prayed for the leadership of the congregation. Number two. He prayed for its weaknesses. And he did so in a very specific fashion. And we'll address that a little bit later in this sermon. But I want you to notice some of the things he specifically prayed for. Verse 31, If any man trespass against his neighbor, and an oath be laid upon him to cause him to swear, and that oath come before thine altar in this house, hear thou in heaven, and do, and judge thy servants. When thy people Israel be smitten down because they've sinned, verse 34, then hear thou in heaven, and forgive. Verse 35, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain. Verse 36, then hear thou in heaven and forgive. Verse 37, if there be in the land famine, if there be pestilence, blasting mildew, he says in verse 39, then hear thou in heaven and forgive. I'm running through this quickly because I want to show you a pattern. Solomon is praying for the specific 
potential sins of an entire nation. God, I, I don't know what awaits us in the future. I've built you a house and I know you don't need a house. He'll address that in a moment. But God, I know that sin awaits this, this nation. Now, did he know that through prophecy? He was pretty specific. Maybe he did. But Solomon prayed specifically for the, the problems that that group of people would be dealing with. Uh, as well, you continue in 1 Kings chapter 8, he prayed for its battles. In verses 44 and 45, you remember uh, that he says, If thy people go out to battle against their enemy, whithersoever thou shalt send them, and shall pray unto the Lord towards the city which thou hast chosen, towards the house that I have built for thy name, then hear thou in heaven their prayer, and maintain their cause. God, I want you to go out with us in our battles. Now let's, let's make a little application for us tonight. When you pray in public prayers, please don't forget the leaders. You know, I've heard it said that you know people have prayed for the preacher to have a long and useful life that he's never going to die. They've done it so much, he's just going to live forever. And that'd be great, I suppose, if everyone in my circle of friends and family did as well. It'd be a lonely life if I was the only one around. But you know, we pray often for the preacher. About the elders, specifically by name. What about the deacons? What about the song leaders? What about the ones who teach Bible classes? So many times we fall into line in our habitual prayers that we forget to be specific and to think about those individuals who represent us and who certainly need our prayer. Concerning the elders in particular, remember them which have the rule over you and have spoken unto you the Word of God whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Remember them when? Remember them in prayer, that certainly Two, he prayed for their weaknesses. Bobby Branch is a really good congregation. I know that. Stable, sound, growing, vibrant. A lot of good work goes on at this congregation. That doesn't mean you don't have areas you can work on. You know what? Let's not be ashamed. Let's pray about it. Can you imagine Solomon on this great day saying, when we sin, God, I know this is a great day, but when we sin, forgive us. Yeah, when somebody makes an oath and they shouldn't have made that oath and they bring it to your temple and it's a rash vow or whatever the case might be, God, forgive us. When we mess up so greatly that you send us into captivity, God, forgive us. And if we repent, forgive us and restore us. And I know that, that, that Hebron needs prayer. I know that Bobby Branch needs prayer, and I certainly know as we move to number three that every family here needs prayers. I know if you're anything like the families represented at Hebron, you've got your battles to fight. And I want people to pray for me in my battles every chance they have. And I know from experience there's nothing more difficult than to remember everybody who needs to be prayed for during a prayer. And sometimes you just can't do it. And I also know that I would never discourage our young men from praying Sometimes, if you're like me, your knees are knocking so badly, all you can remember is, God, thank you for this day. Amen. And you have to sit down. There was a fellow who filled in for me preaching one Sunday, and I wasn't there because he was filling in preaching for me, and he got extremely nervous. He got up in the pulpit, and, you know, he gave his, his hello, and, and everything left him. He froze up. So he gave the invitation and sat down. Sometimes that's the best you can do. 
And I'm not talking to you young fellows who are just getting started and, and you know you're 16 years old and, and, and you're still wet out of the baptistry and you get up here to, to lead a prayer and, and you barely get through it. I understand and I applaud you. But for the rest of us, we seasoned veterans. Let's remember that prayer in public worship has a purpose. Let's make sure those people who need it the most get our prayers at home and in public. Let's remember the purpose for prayer. As I was reading through 1 Kings 8, I thought, man, you know, Solomon, he was so specific. He was so direct. He was so powerful in what he said. And you know, sometimes I think that gets lost in our prayers in public worship today. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we continue. So it's subject, Israel. Number two. Strangers. First Kings chapter 8 and verse 41 kind of surprised me. I didn't figure Solomon in this great national occasion would say this. Moreover, concerning a stranger that is not of thy people Israel, but cometh out of a far country for thy name's sake, for they shall hear of thy great name and of thy strong hand and of thy stretched out arm when he shall come and pray towards this house. Hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and do according to all that the stranger calleth to thee for, that all people of the earth may know thy name to fear thee, do thy people Israel, and that they may know that this house which I have builded is called by thy name. As I was reading this, I just thought about something, and I'll throw it out there. I don't know if it's the case. I wonder if strangers were present right then. Visitors who had come to see the dedication of this great and massive building. I know people came from all over to hear his wisdom. Wouldn't they come from all over to see his building? Imagine them hearing Him pray for them. Now, let me make some application this this evening. Consider this. And I've got 1 Peter 3, 1-4 up there. It talks about wives and their husbands who are unbelieving, but, but we're going to make an application here. This is where I want to talk to those of us who are being led in prayer. Let's say that a visitor walked into our services this evening. He sat near the back, or she sat near the back. And the whole service, they had never been to a worship service of the Lord's Church, and the whole service they just sat there and watched. Maybe they watched me, the preacher, or Tony, the preacher, and you know, they saw that, you know, in that prayer before the sermon, he had his head up and he was thumbing through his notes. I've never done that before. I know he never has. And they saw one of the elders and, you know, Something had happened and he was checking his phone right there. That would never happen. I know no elder would do that. I'm, they probably don't know how to work phones if you're of a certain age. No, you probably do. I don't want to stereotype. I don't want to stereotype demographics. And it certainly wouldn't be the case that some young lady was taking a glance over at the guy across the way and saying, this nice looking gentleman. And this visitor who's in the back is just watching all of this as the prayer is going on. And then when someone comes up to read the Scripture and, and they look around and they see maybe very few people or just a handful of people who have flipped in their Bible and they're, they're reading along. And, and that person leaves that service and they say, you know, it certainly wasn't very emotional. Would that be my fault? And your fault? In some way it would, wouldn't it? You see, I have here plugging in. And it's interesting, I, uh, I typed that in because I was looking for ideas for backgrounds and things like that, and I came up with all these denominational programs that people had instituted to try to get plugged in 
because you know the message doesn't work for young people today. And so you've got to find a way to plug them in. And they had all these motifs for iPhones and all these things. And you have, you have a, a separate worship groups in homes and you have all of these other things going on to try to plug people in. But you know the fundamental problem with that? Plugging in is my responsibility and it's yours. Now, if I don't do my due diligence to make a sermon you can use, then I have a part to play in that. If as a prayer, I don't give a prayer that's, that's valid and, and useful as for what it's meant to do and the purpose it's meant to give, if as a song leader I'm not doing my due diligence to lead the song in the right way, I can contribute to a disconnect. But ultimately, it's your obligation and it's mine as people sitting and hearing sermons, hearing prayers, listening to the Scriptures as it's, being, as it's being read. When we're doing all of those things, it's my obligation to plug myself in. And I have an obligation to people who are watching me that they know what it means to worship. It's an active, engaged process. If you don't believe me, go to 1 Kings chapter 8 and let's see. Verse 62. He's done praying and he's going to offer a sacrifice. And notice what it says in verse 62. And the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. Who was doing the offering? Well, Solomon was. But Israel was engaged in everything that was taking place. I'm certain they were giving offerings as well. But then you continue here in verse number 65. At the same time, Solomon held a feast and all Israel with him. On the eighth day, verse 66, he sent the people away and they blessed the king and went unto their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had done for David His servant and for Israel His people. Can you say in verse 66 they got something out of that service? They left joyful. They left glad. But here's my question. Why did they get something out of that service? Because they plugged themselves in to what was going on. It's your obligation and it's mine do that. We help our public prayers when we do that. We help our song leaders when we do it. We certainly help our preachers. There's nothing more discouraging than looking out and saying, now let me say this, has there ever been a time when I've listened to preaching and I've been tempted to do that because I had a rough night? Because I was on medication for a cold? Or Oh, I understand. Some of you work nights. You come in on two wheels. I, hey, I, I understand what it's like but consistently being disconnected affects your worship. And it affects the worship of others too. And that stranger that wanders in might just be looking at you and watching you. 1 Peter 3, 1-4 gives a believing wife instructions for how to help convert an unbelieving husband. If that husband won't listen to the word that she tries to teach him, her only recourse is to demonstrate it by the way she lives. You are the best sermon that some people will ever hear. And if we can get them into the worship service and they can see us engaged and active and involved and interested, they'll be more likely to be the same. But if they see a bunch of folks who could care less and are here to fill a pew and then go home, what reason should they have for adjusting their life to fit the pattern of the New Testament? 
hope that raises the, ch- the bar for us just a little bit and challenges us in relationship to our worship, whether it's prayer or whatever it might be. So there's the who. Now here's the how. I put that clock where it's almost hard for a tall guy to see. Just a few more feet and I could have a good excuse for continuing to go too long. How did he pray? Well, we go back to, to 2 Chronicles chapter 6 and, and we even see it in 1 Kings chapter 8. Near the end of this prayer that he has been praying, he concludes, and I want you to notice what he does. In verse 54, And it was so that when Solomon had made an end of praying all his prayer and supplication unto the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. Solomon had been praying from his knees. Hands up to heaven. Now, now question it. Is that how we must pray? Certainly not. I remember uh, visiting very early in my preaching career uh, at Vanderbilt, I believe it was. Maybe St. Thomas, I can't remember. A Nashville hospital. And I was visiting the mother of a member. And th- that mother also had a, a, a daughter who was a member at Central when Kirk Brothers was there. And uh, Kirk led the prayer for the family in the waiting room. The mother was dire in, in dire circumstances. She eventually passed away. And Brother Brothers knelt down to pray. And I was kind of taken aback because, you know, it's kind of a, a scene, you know, right there in the middle of the waiting room. He's going to kneel down and pray. I was a little uncomfortable, but, you know, I went with it because there's nothing wrong with it. I later learned, he said, look, I, I don't want you to, you know, think that I want you to pray that way. Said, that's the way I was taught to pray. Solomon was doing it to demonstrate his humility. I am not worthy to stand before you. And instead I'll kneel. And remember, he was on a scaffold before the entire congregation. He prayed humbly. You go to verse 23 of of chapter 8 and you see some marching points all throughout here. He said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like Thee. Verse 27, he said, God, will you indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and heaven of heavens can't contain thee. I know I'm building you a house, but hey, that house can't hold you. Humility. I'm not going to puff myself up as having done some great thing before the God of heaven. In verse number 40, he says that they may fear thee. In verse 43, concerning the strangers, he said that they may fear thee. The emphasis is on humility. The emphasis is on humble service and obedience. Solomon was humble. I'll never forget standing in chapel at the Memphis School of Preaching to lead a public prayer. And I was pretty green as Christians go and as potential preachers go. I don't know, I'd been a Christian maybe two or three years. And here I was leading a prayer before some of the greatest men I'd ever met. One of whom was Keith Mosier. If you don't know him, he is the drill sergeant of the bunch. There has to be one in every crowd to accomplish the purpose of whipping you into shape, right? And Brother Mosier's job was in, in some ways, and, and I don't know if he would appreciate this or not, to overreact so as to teach you a lesson. That's what drill sergeants do, right? You didn't, you didn't tuck your corners in just right? Let me spit in your face for about 20 minutes until you understand what you're supposed to do. Well, I led a prayer and I said, I led it in the same way I always do. God our Father, we humbly come before you this morning. When I was done with that prayer, he stood up and he said, Brother, I don't even think you knew my name yet. He said, Brother, 
If you're humble, you don't have to tell us. We'll know it. His point was this. I can say we humbly come before you a million times. And my prayer might not be any more humble than than anybody else's. Humility in prayer doesn't come from claiming such. It comes from being and doing such. And I took the lesson. Now, is there anything wrong with saying we humbly come before you? No. I'll probably still do it a time or two. Let me tell you how I, what I take from that. I'm afraid and I'm glad that I don't know how you pray because I I don't want to intentionally single anyone out. I'm afraid that prayers become about one-upmanship sometimes in public. Let me show this group of people just how much I know by praying a prayer that includes the Scripture and the reference. Have you ever heard anybody do that? They'll, they'll pray and they'll give the Scripture, and then they'll also give the reference. And I heard someone say, I think God knows where it's found. But why do people do that? Why do people insist on saying prayers that, that seem overly, overly pretentious? I think it becomes about a demonstration of, of how much they know and, and how good they are at praying. My parents are not members of the Lord's Church and they're not very religious people in general. And I've been at the Memphis School of Preaching for some time. Brother Mosier had gotten a hold of me. And, uh, and we were in, at dinner one evening and she asked me to lead a prayer and I did. And when we were done, she said, that was a beautiful prayer. And it made me very uncomfortable because after all... It's not really the goal of prayer, is it? For somebody to say, you led a beautiful prayer. Now, a beautiful prayer is a beautiful prayer, and I love it, and I'm not discouraging it. But prayer is not about being the best public prayer that you can be in the sound of it and the wording of it. It's about humbly representing a congregation and putting before the throne of God what needs to be said. There are folks at Hebron and there are country folks and they come in and their boots still have the mud from, from, the, from the field where they check the cattle between services. And they call on them to lead a prayer and it's not near as big as it is here and they stand up right where they are and they lead prayers that are short. They don't have a big vocabulary, but they are stirring because they come from the heart. 1 Timothy 2.8 If I were preaching a traditional sermon on prayer and worship, here's the point, and this is a valid point and needs to be addressed. I will, therefore, that men, the Greek word for males, pray everywhere. In the public worship, it is males who are to take the the role of prayer and leading in the worship. You and I probably understand that. If there's a visitor here who does not, we'd be happy to carry you a little bit farther through 1 Timothy chapter 2 and talk to you at, at length about that. I want you to notice as we continue. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. There are three things that we learn about public prayer from 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. We learn who, but then we learn how in three ways. Lifting up holy hands. Again, that's not instruction on how we are to pray in terms of the physical appearance. It means your hands need to be holy When you stand before God, Isaiah said, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. What's the first thing God did so they could talk? He cleansed it. When I come before God, my hands better be clean. I need to have a pure soul. Without wrath, I need to have a clean heart. And doubting, I need to have a clean mind. You see, a good prayer 
isn't about impressing all of the people that are there. It's about demonstrating in the right ways what that congregation needs brought before the throne of God at that particular time. And you say, well, man, you're awful hard on us. Listen, I need this as much as you do. I think at one time or another we're all guilty of standing up in front of a group of people and just reciting the prayers that we're used to praying, we're used to saying. Bring us back at the next appointed time. There's nothing wrong with that. Not a single thing in the world wrong with that. But do we really think about what we're saying when we say it? I don't, I don't know. And it's uncomfortable to think about the fact that I need to challenge myself to be more heartfelt and more earnest when I pray. Think about the prayers that we give at the dinner table. Let me tell you mine. God, our Father, thank You for this food. We pray that it may nourish our bodies and better serve Thee. Forgive us for our sins. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now let's eat. Where's the food? Maybe yours are like that. Maybe they're not. I don't know. If I'm not careful, my prayers become rote memorization. Which brings us to our last point, and then the sermon will be yours. He preached with specificity. He or prayed with specificity. He prayed for what needed to be prayed about at that particular time. And we've already gone over the specifics about it. Let me remind you of what Matthew 6 and verse 7 says, but when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathens do. For they think they shall be heard for their much speaking. Now, that's referencing people such as uh, the contest in 1 Kings 18.26 where they, where they cried to their gods and they cut themselves and they continued to cry all day and night to their gods hoping that by crying an extended period of time they would actually listen. And of course they were chided, well, maybe he's on a journey. You know, maybe he's asleep. And it's one of the most hilarious, sarcastic things in the whole Scripture and I love it. It's an amazing uh, 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 dialogue there. In Acts 19 and verse 34, they cried repeatedly, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. But you know, can't we become guilty of vain repetition? Again, I'm not talking to our little ones. Our littlest ones at Hebrews learn, God our Father, God our Father, once again, once again, we bow our heads and thank you. Um, they're learning how to pray, and I don't have a problem with that. A 12, 13, 14-year-old man newly o- o- obeyed the Gospel. Man, he's scared to death. That's all I can do. I understand. But for us veterans, let's challenge ourselves to pray prayers that are heartfelt, that represent the people for whom we're praying and the specific things that we need. Now, now I'm not in any way discouraging us from from praying however we're used to praying and, and from doing the things that we need to do because we're nervous or because we're just not eloquent. But it doesn't take eloquence to pray heartfelt and sincere prayer representing the people for whom you're praying. I hope that in some small way I have challenged us all. Let me ask these two questions finally this evening. Have you plugged in to Christ? My phone is an iPhone and I'm amazed at how long it holds its charge. Maybe We've had phones in the past and maybe somebody's frowning and saying, my iPhone doesn't last any time. You know, when you buy those phones from the factory, they come with a small charge. But it'll only get them so far before they need to be charged the first time. You have not a single bit of ability to save yourself outside of Christ. You need to be plugged into Him. Ephesians 1 and verse 3 says, In Christ are all spiritual blessings, including in that context, 
the remission of sins. The only way to to be found in Christ, having believed, repented, and confessed the name of Jesus, according to Galatians 3.27, Romans 6, 3 and 4, is to be baptized into Christ. The New Testament tells us no other way to get into Christ. You know, once you're in Christ, Romans 8 says that nothing shall be able to separate you from the love of Christ, except one thing it doesn't mention. Me or you. I can take myself out of the love of Christ. Maybe as a Christian you've done that. You have unplugged yourself from the only power to save you. And dear friend, what about your worship to God? Are you plugged in? This this series is going to continue. I don't know what the rest of these speakers are going to talk about, but I hope you consider that one fact. Concerning my singing, the preaching, the Lord's Supper, the prayers, the Bible reading, all those things. Am I plugged in? If you need to obey the gospel to be restored, do it now as together we stand and sing.